God speaks the Bible to us. Um, he works by his spirit through his word. We need him to do that. We're utterly dependent. Let's pray. Father, please do help us to focus and think. Please help us to hear and understand the things you say. Uh, Please do shift and change uh, our heads and hearts that we might live more and more, uh, that we might think and fail and decide and do more and more in ways that are tuned to how things really are. In the Lord Jesus, amen. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations. These are mortals and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. C.S. Lewis wrote those words for a sermon which became an essay, uh, The Weight of Glory. He argued, the load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the pride will be broken. Last week we focused on uh, Paul's gospel-hearted love since he was forced to leave the believers in Thessalonica. He passionately devoted himself to making sure God's word is prayerfully spoken to them. I take it that's the humble way to feel the weight of one another's immortality. Not as master chefs, but as humble co-workers of the master master chef, urgently and prayerfully speaking his word, because we're convinced he works faith and love and godliness and holiness and steadfast endurance. In chapter 3, verse 12, Paul speaks uh, his longing and prayer for the Lord to make the believers he wrote to increase and abound in love for one another and for all as he and his team increased and abounded in love for them. God wants his people to increase and abound in the same love. Love for one another. Not just love for one another, love for all. Uh, So we're going back to the beginning of chapter 2 to read what Paul says about his first weeks in Thessalonica. When he arrived there, no one knew Christ. All of them were lost. This section describes Paul's love for all. His love for the lost. So what drove and motivated Paul? Why did he do what he did? 
In verses 1 and 2, he says it wasn't the desire to avoid pain and shame. The time Paul and his team spent in Thessalonica could have been in vain. It could have been an empty waste of time. Verse 1, he says it wasn't. It wasn't an empty waste of time. No, it would have been if he had kept quiet. And that's where the pressure pushed. He felt it. The week before he arrived in Thessalonica, he was in Philippi. The details are in Acts chapter 16. He spoke the gospel of God in Philippi and experienced the consequences. Paul and Silas were dragged into the marketplace by an angry mob, accused and condemned without trial, stripped and beaten with rods until wounds opened, then battered and bruised and bleeding, wounds open and unwashed. Paul and Silas were taken into the depths of the city prison and shackled in stocks. Pain and shame. A week later in Thessalonica, the faces are different, but the risks are the same. They know how it's gone before and they know how it could very well go if they speak God's gospel again. The pressure is to be silence. But Paul and the others feel free to speak. Why? Well, it's because he sees what can't be seen. Everyone can see he's in the midst of much conflict. But they are also in our God. The reality of being in the presence of God wins out over the reality of being in the presence of threat. So chapter 2, verse 2. We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in much conflict. It's as if two presences are pushing on him. The presence of our God and the presence of much conflict. If it was just the conflict and the threat of pain and shame, he'd have stayed silent. He'd have done no good. But Paul wasn't driven by his desire to avoid pain and shame. He was driven by his desire to please God. The Thessalonians were used to having uh, traveling speakers roll into town. Uh, First century Netflix was strolling through the street, meeting travelers, um, philosophers, magicians, religious enthusiasts, and people who made their living from public speaking. Ancient literature talks about how greedy and immoral they were. They'd worked the crowd to build wealth and popularity. Uh, uh, Some didn't argue what they thought was true. They just argued what they thought would win the crowd. These philosopher fakes said whatever would deceive the locals into giving them money, food, and a place to stay, and often a bed to share. Paul wasn't like them, verse 3. Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity, or any attempt to deceive. Uh, Philosopher fakes, they pitched the truth to to fit the crowd. Their agenda was an opportunity for immoral impurity. They deceived those they spoke to. They did not risk pain and shame. So what motivated Paul to speak when the threat of pain and shame hung over him? Verse 4, God motivated him. 
Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul spoke to please God who appointed him to speak. His past speech to them, the words he's writing in this letter, are because God entrusted him with the gospel. Paul spoke to please that audience. Whatever powerful person was in front of him, whatever angry uh, crowd stood in front of him, he spoke to please an audience of one. The one living and true, loving and holy God. The God who gave him his message. The God who he met in his son, the Lord Jesus. He spoke to please God who tests our hearts and who knows our motivations. So, God knows Paul's heart because nothing is hidden from him. And Paul writes verse 5 to help the Thessalonians see his own heart. He says, think about it. You know what I did? I didn't flatter anyone. That sounds true. The gospel is hardly a flattering message. Your attitudes and actions are so bad that the living and true, loving and holy God is justly and passionately angry with you. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. Jesus is the only Savior. You must trust him to deliver you from the coming wrath. Verse 5, Paul didn't flatter anyone, nor did he come with a pretext for greed. He didn't watch their reactions to figure out, (laughs) what are they thinking? Should I change what I'm saying here uh, so I'll get money from them? They should know it from what they saw him do. God who tests our hearts knows it because he sees Paul's heart. So Paul says, God is witness. And then reminds them of more, verse 6. He didn't look for glory, recognition, reputation. Not from them, not from, not with anyone. He could have been a burden and made demands in Thessalonica. Workers are worthy of the wages. Oxen uh, should, should be free to eat while they tread out the grain. Spiritual teachers should receive material care. Word teachers should have all good things shared with them by those they teach. But they didn't make demands as they evangelized. Now, partly because the recently converted Philippians were already sending help to meet their needs. Probably Paul's working his job, or working his trade, making tents. However, he didn't demand help. He reminds them of it. Verse 7, they were gentle. Uh, They were gentle like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. This is where we begin to say so very clearly that Paul lived and preached to please God and at the same time he cared about the people he spoke to. He loved them. Gunslingers in the West... Uh, would put notches on their belts as they uh, killed people. Paul wasn't a gunslinging evangelist who put notches on his Bible every time someone became a became a Christian so he could rub his thumb up 
I think, how good he was. Paul wasn't pleasing God by speaking God's gospel so he could tick a box in his daily planner. Shared God's gospel today. He likes that. He must be happy with me. Yes, he did it to please God. Did it to please God, whom he loved. But he was also loving them. Doing what's best for them because he wanted what's best for them. It's strange in our minds, but in the ancient world, some mothers outsourced breastfeeding. Uh, They paid a wet nurse to breastfeed their babies. Why did the wet nurse feed someone else's baby? That's pretty straightforward. It's because they wanted the money. Why did Paul speak the gospel to the Thessalonians? Because he wanted to take care of them like a wet nurse taking care of her own children. How how did Paul take care of them like a breastfeeding mother cares for her own children? Like this, verse 8. Being affectionately desirous for you, longing for you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. You become beloved to us. He's telling them where they sit in his passions. He's telling them his emotional commitment to them. This is how he felt and feels about them. Verse 9, Paul reminds them he didn't make demands as he evangelized them. Uh, You remember, brothers and sisters, uh, our labor and toil, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. He wasn't like a wet nurse who'd turn up as long as there was money and then disappear when there was none. He loved them like his own children. He didn't need to try to avoid acting like a hired speaker because he didn't think or fail like a hired speaker. His heart was in it. Just like a breastfeeding mother full of affection and love for her own child, he was there doing what's best for them because he wanted what's best for them. I think it's helpful for you to know I don't prayerfully speak the Bible, speak God's word to you uh, for the money. If I was working another job, I'd still be investing my time and talents and treasure in prayerfully speaking God's word to you. But I'm privileged to be freed up, uh, freed up from needing to do that uh, so that I can give myself full time to that task. Prefer to think of being freed up than being paid for. That makes sense? Another angle on Paul's love for them is love like a father who trains and equips his children. Loving fathers don't say, life is hard, let me know how you get on. They don't leave their children to work it out for themselves. They teach what they've learned. What they've learned from their own experience, what they've learned uh, from the experience of others. Uh, because their mum and dad and others have taught them. Verse 10, they saw, and God saw, uh, how sharing his life with them meant modeling holiness, righteousness, blamelessness, as they began to believe. He says, verse 11, for you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul had things to say. 
He spoke with God's authority. Taught, exhorted, appealed. But he wants us to see it as the overflow of love. He encouraged, he exhorted, encouraged, charged them with the truth which brings life. He spelled out to them uh, how they were to live, now that through faith in Jesus they were God's forgiven people and members of his kingdom. How to live in a way that is worthy of God who called them. As subjects of his kingdom, eager to please and honor God who saved them. Paul did what's best for them because he wanted what's best for them. Like a caring mother, like a teaching father. He cares how it turns out. Verses 13 and 14 show us how much Paul cares. He's emotionally invested in them. He loved them by speaking the gospel to them. Uh, by describing and modeling how confident trust in Jesus spills out into all of life. So he is delighted to see the gospel working in them. Verse 13. Uh, In verse 13, he talks about how he still thanks God even now for what God did when Paul first spoke the gospel to them. He's looking back to when they passed over from death to life and thanking God for it. Verse 13. Uh, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. Paul, thank God. He's been thanking God. He's still thanking God for saving them. He thanks God because God worked in them through his word. Yes, they chose. uh, They received Paul's words as God's words. They thought and understood and decided and did. But why did they willingly and freely come? Why did they willingly and freely come to Jesus? Well, the fuller reality of their decision is that God gave them to Jesus. God worked in them by his spirit through his word. Paul sees that clearly. So he's glad they did it and he thanks God that they did it. He thanks God that they accepted his words as God's words. And his deep concern for them, his love for them, explains why he constantly and still keeps thanking God for what God did for them. It's a little surprising to read on into verse 14. To read on into verse 14 and see what God working in them looks like. He says to them, brothers and sisters, you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Normal Christian life includes being opposed by those who oppose God's gospel. And when the opposition built in Thessalonica, the new believers suffered rather than stepped back. Just like the believers in in Judea had. Paul sees their steadfastness under suffering and he sees it as evidence of God's work. They really are receiving God's words As God's words, God really is at work in them, so he 
thanks God. Paul prayerfully spoke God's word in Thessalonica. He wasn't driven by uh, the desire to avoid pain and shame. He was driven by the desire to please God and by his love for the lost. He did what's best for them because he wanted to please God who wanted what's best for them. And he himself wanted what's best for them. Eternal life and not eternal judgment. Compare that to what the gospel opposers achieve. Verse 15 describes gospel opposing Jews and maybe Gentiles in the Thessalonian context. Describes them as, sorry, describes gospel opposing Jews as those who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Now, Paul isn't being anti-Semitic. He's not being anti-Jew. He loved the Jews and he longed for them to turn and trust the Messiah Christ. Read the start of Romans chapter 9 if you want to see that. He knew his opposition to the gospel was part of his history. He did this. That's why I talked about it last week. Paul is not hating on race or religion. He's pointing to what religion achieves. That's Paul's point. He's not saying hate the Jews. He's not saying the Jews are acting out of deliberate unconscious hate. He's showing us what their opposition to the gospel achieves. So put him in a place where the gospel is opposed uh, and competed with by, by, by people who hold to Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, materialism, inclusivism. Uh, that's just what I've decided to believe ism. Every viewpoint and worldview that aims to silence the gospel, uh, hold people to it instead of seeing them come to Jesus, or convince and compel those who have come to Jesus to give up on him, Every viewpoint or worldview that does that, Paul would say much the same thing. End of verse 15. They displease God. They oppose all humans. Now, it's not how they see reality. It's not what they think they are doing. It's not even what Paul thought he was doing when he did it. But it is reality. God delights to save. He wants his gospel to be preached, his son to be known, men, women, and children uh, to turn in trust to the only Savior. Anyone who opposes that displeases him. Everyone is immortal and Jesus is the only Savior. Anyone who tries to convince or compel believers to give up on Jesus opposes what's best for them by trying to push them back into condemnation. Anyone who aims to silence the gospel opposes what's best for those who are lost without Christ and will remain lost while they are cut off from Christ and his gospel. Hear this clearly. The beautiful people 
they seek to silence the gospel, oppose all humans. We can't accept our society's narrative. Religious viewpoints are not just a matter of opinion. Is anything worse than opposing the gospel? Leaving the lost unsaved? Leaving the saved unsupported? Now, people do awful things. Some of them do it deliberately. But no one does more damage. No one does more damage to people than those who oppose the gospel. Yeah? No one does more damage to people than those who oppose the gospel. Because opposing the gospel opposes what's best for all humans. It's the opposite of love, really. It's the opposite of pleasing God who delights to save. Verse 16, it displeases him. And by doing it, they fill up the measure of their sins, but the wrath has come upon them at last. For them, Jesus, who tests our hearts, is their condemning judge. He knows how to just. He knows how to judge justly. He knows how to hold them accountable for what they are accountable. They may taste his coming judgment in being handed over to unbelief in this life. They will face him as their just and terrible judge when Jesus comes to save. Paul loved the lost. And he loved the saved. He loved the lost and he loved the saved as if everyone is immortal and Jesus is the only saviour. Because he was convinced it is true. Only Jesus delivers from the wrath to come. Everyone, everyone will experience either everlasting life or everlasting contempt. So Paul prayed and he spoke God's word and he did it urgently, even at risk of pain and shame and worse. He was driven by his desire to please God who delights to save. He was driven by his love for the lost who desperately need to be saved. His head, heart and life were tuned to reality. God did that. And God speaks the Bible to us. He reveals reality and when we see it and our heads, hearts, heads and hearts are tuned to it, we will be so concerned for the people of our city and the nations that we'll order our lives around seeing them meet Christ Jesus. There are practical things to work out. Prayer for one another as witnesses. Prayer for our mutual and believing friends. Friends who haven't met other sojourners yet. Uh, people in Brisbane we haven't met yet. Uh, training and learning from one another so we're better equipped to have gospel-shaped worldview conversations. Discussing how we can be a more inclusive community of believers with unbelievers. Uh, not just in whatever intentional communities uh, we may do. Brainstorming ways we can actively partner with each other because God has wired each of us differently 
and given us different gifts and skills so that we can work together as a body. Thinking about how best to talk with unbelieving friends about how hanging out with believers might help them get a better understanding of the gospel. Inviting them to explore the gospel with us. And helping one another think out beyond Brisbane into the millions of people in Australia and billions of people around the world who are lost without Christ. And how we'll care, how we'll pray and care and give. And who will go? There are practical and deliberate aspects to building relationships and communities in which we prayerfully speak God's gospel. As we speak it to one another, as we speak it to the lost, it can be costly and it will be costly. We won't do it if we're driven by the desire to avoid pain and shame and other costs. We will do it if we're driven by the desire to please God, to love the lost, by love for the lost, not to love, by love for the lost, and by love for one another. Let's soak in the realities that fuel that love. Let's carry all the weight of knowing just how very, very much is at stake. Let's carry all the weight of knowing what is at stake in humble dependence on God who does the work. Let's keep asking our Father to tune our heads and hearts and lives to eternal realities so that as his word shapes us deeply, the Lord will make us increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Now let's keep asking him to give our friends to Jesus for their great good and for our Savior's great glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks again that you reveal what is to us in the Scriptures. Thanks again that you don't just reveal it, but that you work by your Spirit through your Word. Please do remake, please do rewire, please do retune our thoughts, our consciences, our wills, our passions. Uh, help us to say things as you reveal them. To relate to one another, to relate to the people you've placed us in relationship around Brisbane. To relate even to those who we don't yet know yet. By being people who are eager to proclaim the gospel. Who are looking for opportunities to speak of the Lord Jesus. To meet people and speak to them. To speak to them pointing to your son to see them exploring the gospel and see you safe. Father, please do for their good and for your glory. Please do give people that we know to your son as we speak and share the gospel with them. In the Lord Jesus, Amen.